Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes, and my co-host Chris Albee is on assignment this week. On this week's program, we have several interviews, including two authors of hot off the presses books that we recommend everyone read: Brian Palmer, who has written Canada's 1960s: The Ironies of Identity in a Rebellious Era, will join us and discuss his book. Also, Judy Rebeck, who has written Transforming Power: From the Personal to the Political, will also be on the program, interviewed by executive producer Saigonic. I'll also be speaking to Michael Shostodovsky, who is going to comment on the G20 meetings occurring in London this week to deal with the financial global capitalism crisis, and finally a discussion with Sam Ginden, former research director of the Canadian Automobile Workers, who will discuss the ongoing crisis in the automobile manufacturing industry. All that plus alert headlines, music is the weapon, and around the left in seven days. These are the alert headlines for April the second, two thousand and nine. Tens of thousands of demonstrators have marched through European cities to demand action on poverty, job losses, and climate change. The demos were aimed at the meetings of the world's. Twenty leading economies, the G20, starting this weekend, in London, about thirty-five thousand protesters gathered last Saturday as part of an alliance of more than one hundred trade unions, aid agencies, religious groups, and environmental organizations. They called on world leaders at the G20 to commit to reforms. Brendan Barber, the general secretary of the British Trade Union Congress, declared that the old ideas of unregulated free markets do not work and have brought the world's economy to near. Collapse and have increased poverty and environmental damage. The Czech Prime Minister has described the United States stimulus packages for its financial institutions as a way to hell. Speaking a day after the collapse of his government, Mirek Topolánek, whose country holds the European Union presidency, told the EU Parliament that Obama's plans to stimulate the U.S. economy would undermine the stability of the global financial market. His comments highlight the growing differences between the EU and Washington on how to deal with the global economic crisis. Several European leaders, including Nicolas Sarkozy, the French president, and Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, are in favor of tighter financial regulations, while the U.S. is pushing for larger economic stimulus packages. The government of the Czech Republic fell after the lower house of parliament voted 101 to 96 to declare no confidence in the three-party coalition government. Czech peace activists see the development as a great victory because the defeat of the government was the only way to stop the installation of a U.S. Star Wars radar base in their country. The Czech peace movement had worked for more than two years to stop the installation of the American base. A government that represents the interests of the U.S. military industry has fallen, Prague activist Jan Tamás has said. A hunger strike was pivotal in making the Socialist Democratic Party take a clear position against U.S. military plans. Canadian auto workers have noted several positive developments in Monday's government announcements from the U.S. and Canada regarding the restructuring of GM and Chrysler. CAW President Ken Loenza said Chrysler will be stronger as a result of the proposed merger with Fiat, and the company would be again run by people with a vision for auto manufacturing rather than private equity interests. 
He also endorsed the plan for governments to guarantee warranties on Chrysler and GM vehicles. And he was encouraged by the old vehicle scrappage incentive. Lewinza reiterated that labor accounts for only 7% of a vehicle's costs and rejected the idea of reopening negotiations with GM. Banned British MP George Galloway delivered his first speech to a Toronto audience on Monday via video link from New York. He also appeared on CBC's The Hour. Earlier, a federal judge upheld a government ban that denied Galloway entry to Canada. In his speech Monday night, broadcast to 500 people in a downtown Toronto church, Galloway challenged Immigration Minister Jason Kenney to come out and debate him face to face. He said it was poetic justice that Kenney's attempt to silence him backfired so wholeheartedly. Galloway's supporters allege political interference in the judicial case because of comments made by Kenney. Benaibrith Canada has called on the Ontario government to impose conditions on its planned infusion of $150 million to Ontario's post-secondary institutions. Frank Diamond, Executive Vice President of Benaibrith, accused some universities of hate, intimidation, Jew-baiting and hateful events. He called Israeli Apartheid Week a hateful event. He specifically cited York University for carrying out such activities in the recent past. Diamond added that universities must not only impose, but also enforce disciplinary measures against campus agitators who he claimed deliberately stir the anti-Jewish pot. U.S.-based rights groups are denouncing the U.S. administration's boycott of a global conference against racism next month. Ramsey Clark, former U.S. Attorney General and winner of the 2008 U.N. Human Rights Award, and hundreds of others have signed a petition urging President Obama to commit the U.S. to full participation at the meeting to be held from April 20th to 24th in Geneva. This meeting is a follow-up to an earlier conference on racism held in Durban, South Africa in 2001. Israel, Canada, Australia and the European Union also may not attend the conference. Initially, the Obama administration indicated its willingness to participate in the conference, but later pulled out after conservative Jewish groups intensified their lobbying efforts for a boycott. And those are the alert headlines. This is Around the Left in Seven Days, for the week of April 2nd, 2009. For more information on any of the events listed in Around the Left in Seven Days, go to CanadianDimension.com and click on Around the Left in Seven Days. On Saturday, April 4th, NATO's 60th anniversary, there are demonstrations worldwide to call for an end to the NATO war in Afghanistan. The Canadian Peace Alliance is calling for a cross-Canada day of action to demand the withdrawal of Canadian troops and to join international protests for an end to the war. There will be events in Charlottetown, Montreal, Winnipeg, Vancouver and other Canadian cities. The Toronto Anarchist Gathering is from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Saturday, April 4th at the Steelworkers Hall on Cecil Street. The event includes book tables, group tables, displays and workshops and is open to anyone with an anti-oppressive perspective against classism, racism, homophobia and other hierarchical attitudes. 
Vancouver's Citywide Housing Coalition is co-organizing a March for Housing on Saturday, April 4th in partnership with different communities, labor unions, and neighborhoods across the Lower Mainland. The downtown Eastside contingent is gathering at Hastings and Maine at noon. Filmmakers Amy M. Miller and Boban Chaldovich are in Winnipeg on Sunday, April 5th as part of a cross-country tour to promote their film Myths for Profit. The film is an expose of Canada's role in industries of war, including CETA's function in conflict zones. The film is playing at the Rudolf Rocker Cultural Centre. Suggested donation is $5. In Winnipeg on April 4th, Peace Alliance Winnipeg is hosting a debate entitled Should Canada Remain in NATO on the occasion of the 60th anniversary of NATO. The debaters will include Dr. James Ferguson, Director of the Centre for Defence and Security Studies from the University of Manitoba, and Professor Henry Heller, Department of History, University of Manitoba. It will be held at St. Matthew's Anglican Church at 1 o'clock. For more information on any of the events listed in Around the Left in 7 Days, go to CanadianDimension.com and click on Around the Left in 7 Days. This is Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes, and I'm joined now by Brian Palmer. Brian Palmer is Canada's premier cultural and labor historian. His latest book, Canada's 1960s, The Ironies of Identity in a Rebellious Era, was published in March 2009. Brian Palmer is a professor and Canada Research Chair in the Department of Canadian Studies at Trent University. Welcome back to Alert, Brian, and congratulations on your new book, Canada's 1960s. Well, thank you for talking a bit about it with your listeners. I'm delighted to be here. Now, the 60s is generally noted as the era of counterculture, sex, drugs, rock and roll, and also political rebellion. You talk about all this in your book, but you center your focus on how the 60s fundamentally and irreversibly altered Canada's national identity, what it meant to be Canadian. So, I know it'll be difficult, but in a few minutes, can you summarize this? How did the 60s change forever what it means to be Canadian? Well, I think that... um on some levels, the, the, the kind of simple thesis of the book is, I think, undeniable, but not actually very readily recognized so far. If you were in Canada in the 19, late 40s, 1950s, and you asked what was a Canadian, there would have been a relatively easy answer that most people would have come up with, most people in the mainstream, and it would have related to Canada being a kind of uh, white settler dominion within the uh, um, sort of British Empire framework, um, a kind of northern nation, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, small power, middle power, but uh, a moderating sort of, sort of influence in global affairs, but very British and British in origin. Uh, and I think this is a myth. I mean, it's wrong. Uh, uh, there are all kinds of ways in which this kind of understanding of Canada, which that sort of prevailed from the mid-19th century into the you know, post-World War II years. Uh, there's all kinds of ways in which it was, in fact, uh, a, a sort of mythology-marking time. But I think what happens is if you jump forward from the mid-50s to the mid-70s and you ask the same question, you would get most Canadians unable to answer. And Canadian identity had become uh, far more elusive, uh, far less certain, um, and... 
this isn't often associated with the 60s and the turmoil of the 60s, but what I try to show is that the 60s, in fact, a whole series of developments, but not excluding the radicalism of the later years of the decade, uh, actually wrote fini to that kind of settled understanding of Canada. And so we've existed since the 1960s in a kind of uh, uncertain and ambiguous state about uh you know, uh, what our national identity is. And uh, I pose the question at the end of the book uh, that the 60s haunts us still because it kind of asks the question, is national identity really what we need? And I think that's an open-ended question. Lots of people will answer it in, in very different ways. Uh, for myself, I'm not so much wedded to the notion that we need a great uh, national identity. I think Lots of nation states that have had that certainty uh, have often had it because of their kind of imperialist, uh, aggressive, uh, powerful place in the world, which hasn't necessarily been uh, the best thing for a whole series of other peoples in colonized and non-colonized situations. Well, Brian, we broadcast Alert at the University of Manitoba, and our listenership uh, is made up of a lot of university-aged uh, people. So, and myself included, those of us who weren't around in the 60s, maybe you can tell us about some of the characters and the events that you included in your books. And I'm looking forward to learning about some of these. Can you tell us about, uh, let's start with, Gerda Munzinger. <laughs> well, Gerda Munzinger was Canada's uh, first and, I suppose, most uh, uh, famous sex scandal, political sex scandal. It was very much tied up with the Cold War. Um, she was a woman who had, had a horrible experience in the aftermath of, in, in, during World War II, in the aftermath of World War II, and she was a displaced person, and she made her way to Canada, uh, largely as a, on the basis of kind of assisted passage from the Canadian government to be a kind of domestic. She did that for a while, but she had her sights on higher things and settled in Montreal, where, you know, she moved from being a waitress to being a hostess to being uh, sort of traveling in in some social circles that were fairly high up and included uh, Tory cabinet ministers at the time, George Hees and uh, especially Pierre Sevigny, who was uh, a francophone advocate of Diefenbaker's One Canada, a war hero who'd lost his leg. Um, but she had been arrested in the immediate aftermath of uh, World War II, largely just for sexual bartering, and she had been living with a, uh, a Russian petty uh, uh, officer. And this labeled her a spy in the Cold War context of the time. And so uh, when they found out that she was in Canada, uh, which they managed to miss her coming in, um, and that she had been associated with two cabinet ministers. There was a big brouhaha that was actually covered up at first, but then broke later in 1966, and there was all kinds of accusations that the Diefenbaker government had compromised national security by covering up this scandal and the liaisons between uh, Munsinger and these two cabinet ministers. What I really try to try to uh, sort of point out in the book is, in some senses, the, the irony of this, that... If you look in the early 60s when the Munsinger events happened, as opposed to the later 60s, sex is dirty, sex is scandalous, sex is to be, to be kept beneath the sheets and behind closed doors. And nobody talked in Ottawa about who slept with whom, you know, away from their domestic uh, circles. Um, and if you jump forward to Trudeau in 68, all of a sudden... Sex has become marketable. Sex has become attractive. Sex has become a good thing. And so the irony that I'm trying to show is how, as the Cold War wanes, 
and as the society and culture changes dramatically, uh, somebody like Munsinger becomes, in some senses, a you know a a sort of symbolic figure of the transformations in society. And I refer to Munsinger as uh, you know metaphorically Trudeau's first lady, but with uh, um, sort of tastes in men that tended to the Tory. Well, Brian Palmer, in your book, you uh, mention another book, Pierre Valier's book, White Niggers of America. Can you tell our listeners about that? Well, White Niggers of America was, was uh, in some senses, the kind of manifesto of the FLQ, the Front de Liberation Quebec, and it was written while Valier was incarcerated in the Tombs, which is a New York City uh, prison, uh, awaiting uh, you know, potential deportation to Canada, which eventually happened um, illegally, by the way. Uh, and it was, uh, in some senses, it's it's been it's been, I think, written off for two reasons. One, the FLQ has been too easily tarred with the brush of terrorism, and in the aftermath of 9/11, this is enough to kind of just shove it aside as a reprehensible organization. It was much more than a terrorist organization. It did. I think, uh, unfortunately and wrongly adapt to terrorist tactics, but it had much more uh, that, that it was aligned with, including aid to striking workers and struggles against uh, imperialism. But there are two things about uh, the book that really, I think, make it a quintessential 60s text. One is, it is a profound statement about the alienation and oppression of the dispossessed in French Canada. It's as passionate and poignant statement of being francophone and what that meant in terms of being on the bottom of the ladder, the socioeconomic ladder, and in a clerical state that kind of really did repress people's uh, uh, basic uh, sort of drives and initiatives. It's that, and it's also a fundamentally internationalist text in the sense that it, it connects the oppression of francophones with global struggles against colonialism and with African-American struggles in the U.S., with Algerian struggles in Africa. Uh, it really is a very 60s text. And it's surprising to me how it still elicits very negative responses on the basis of its title, which was admittedly inflammatory, um, but which too many people kind of write off at this point is by saying that, you know, uh, whites uh, can't be niggers. Uh, Valier crossed a kind of linguistic uh, uh, threshold in, in naming his book that. In fact, I think he did it very purposefully, and I think he did it as an act of solidarity with peoples of color around the world, and I think that's the way the text needs to be read. Well, the book sounds like it could have been written in the 1860s here in Manitoba by the Métis population, but we well, want to cover a lot of ground here, Brian Palmer, so let's move on to the boxing match that happened in 1966 in Maple Leaf Gardens between Muhammad Ali and uh, Shivalo. Was it Frank Shivalo? No, George Shivalo. Okay. Can you tell us about that? Well, um... It's it's a very famous match, boxing match, because uh, Ali had just kind of come out as being against the war in Vietnam. Uh, he was uh, about to announce, it would come after the fight, that he uh, was a member of the Nation of Islam, uh, um, commonly referred to in the, in the sort of main, mainstream press as black Muslims. Um, and uh, he was a very unpopular figure. He could not fight in the U.S., 
they ended up with a fight. It's a long, convoluted story at Maple Leaf Gardens in which George Chevalier, who was the leading Canadian kind of heavyweight contender in that period, was given a chance to fight uh, Muhammad Ali. Now, what there, there are a number of things that I try to draw out in this fight. Um, I suppose the most important is that in Chevalier came from uh, um, sort of Central European uh, immigrant uh, stock. His parents were worked in the meat plants and uh, the chicken plucking factories of the Junction, which is a very working class neighborhood in Toronto. Um, and in the 50s, someone like George Chevalier wouldn't even have been considered white. He wouldn't have been part of that British national Canadian identity that I talked about earlier. Jump forward to 1966, and he's fighting the sort of big, black, and dangerous Cassius Clay, then, as he was known, later to become Muhammad Ali. And Chevalier becomes the great white hope. So in some senses, this chapter is about the irony of someone wouldn't have been considered white in the in the in the early 50s all of a sudden becoming uh sort of the representative of a canadian national identity and a white hope against ali uh in the later 1960s um and it's also the case that in some senses after the fight uh he became again symbolic in the sporting realm really this is chevalo represents the fight against the big american and uh he didn't win the fight, but he didn't lose. And he lasted 15 rounds with the fighter who would become, of course, the greatest heavyweight champion of the world. And in that sense, a lot of Canadians latched on to him in the way that they later would, a few years, a few years hence, uh, latch on to Paul Henderson, who scored the winning goal against the Russians in you know, the Canadian-Russian uh, hockey contest in 1972. So it's that irony of someone uh, becoming something that he wasn't that I kind of uh, look to in that chapter. As well as pointing out, I think, the significant degree of racism in Canada, which Canadians like to kind of hide from and deny when they compare themselves with the U.S. Mm. Brian Palmer, author of Canada's 1960s, The Ironies of Identi Identity in a Rebellious Era. I'd just like to ask you one final question here on Alert Radio. What is the legacy of the 60s for Canada, and how in particular did it affect you? Well, I, I, uh, uh, it affected me profoundly in the sense that I still think I, I came to kind of intellectual and political maturity in the 60s, and in some senses my die was cast. And uh, I believed very strongly in the idealism, uh, the radicalism, the oppositional current, the possibilities of creating alternatives that were fundamental to a whole series of developments in the later 1960s um, and that were associated with kind of youth rebellion. Um, and uh, so, for me, it was a it was a it was a profoundly determining decade. Um, it it I think, uh, and, and part of the reason that's why I wrote the book um, because it's too easily written off as a decade that's come and gone, that went up with something of a bang but came down with a whimper, and it had really no lasting impact. The left organizations, the youth radicalism, uh, all seem to have dissipated over the course of the last four decades. Um, I don't think that's true. I think they live on in in aspects of red power and the women's liberation movement, um, and in in all series of uh, uh, critiques of colonialism and imperialism that we see are you know central to the politics of the left today. So, uh, I, I wanted to kind of write a book that, uh, in some senses, put.
put people back in touch with a decade of profound importance, arguably the most tumultuous decade of the 20th century, and in some senses one that idealism, uh, I think, still has a lot to show in terms of the way forward. Well, one last time, the book is called Canada's 1960s, The Ironies of Identity in a Rebellious Era. And we've been speaking to Brian D. Palmer, who is a Canada Research Chair at Trent University. And this is Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Judy Rebick's new book, Transforming Power from the Personal to the Political, hit the streets this week. Judy is, of course, formerly president of the National Action Committee on the Status of Women and presently currently holds the Sam Gindin Chair in Social Justice and Democracy at Ryerson University. She was the co-host of a primetime debate show called Face Off and CBC News World from 1994 to 1998, and in 2001, she helped launch Rabble.ca and served as publisher of Rabble.ca from 2001 until 2005. Welcome to Alert, Judy Rebick. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Uh, Judy, you probably don't know this, but um, at the time that Canadians voted Tommy Douglas as the greatest Canadian, Canadian Dimension launched its own contest to determine the greatest Canadian shit disturber. And you, Judy Rebick came in second, only to the winner, Stan Gray. (laughs) So what do you say about that? Oh, that's great. How come I didn't know that? Well. Who came in first was... um, Stan Gray. Stan Gray, yeah, that's right. Okay. Oh, how come I didn't know I came in second? I would have been thrilled. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So yesterday, I spent a lovely day reading your book, Transforming Power, and you're to be congratulated. It's really a great read. Thank you. Uh, Citing uh, Hugo Chavez, Evo Morales, and Barack Obama as examples, you say in the book that giving people hope is an essential quality for being a progressive leader in the 21st century. And that's what I take from your book, Judy. You bring stories of hope from around the world. And despite so many setbacks and the moribund state of the left in this country, you, Judy Rebeck, are hopeful that change, and good change, is coming. So maybe we should start off with why, in 2009, you appear to be so hopeful. Well, I mean, par- you know, part of it is that I've been traveling a lot, and I've seen uh, a new kind of politics around the world, starting with Latin America. At first I thought it was just in Latin America, because, um, you know, we all know that we, you know, the participatory budget came from Latin America. I learned about popular education from Latin America. There's been all kinds of new innovations from Latin America. And then, of course, Chavez in Venezuela. And I went to Bolivia because a friend of mine had lived there, and she convinced me to go there. And I spent five weeks there, and it just blew my mind. Like, I, I felt that this was... I had already seen a new role for in, of indigenous people in Latin America. They were starting to play a leadership role for the whole of the movement. So I'd already begun to see that at the World Social Forum, particularly in Caracas. But in Bolivia, I saw something astonishing, which was a, an indigenous government, uh, you know, in a country where indigenous people had been so marginalized, so persecuted, so poor for so long, uh, that they, they came to, they took over government, and they were running it, um, 
at least at that time it looked like, and, and two years later it's still like this, that they, they, had, uh, they were uh, running government and basing it on the power of mobilized people and basing it on uh, their traditional ways, as well as I, what I would consider the best of the left. So it's an alliance between indigenous people and in Bolivia. Um, a lot of the, about 40% of the population is still living in communal farms, right, in, in traditional ways. Mm-hmm. So they have a memory of those old ways, which are to live in harmony with the earth and harmony with each other. When I went to Bolivia, Evo Morales didn't have a sense of um, how, how much he had to offer the rest of the world. I got a sense of that, so when I and I asked him, and he didn't really know what I meant, but now he does, and he's playing that role. And so I saw a really profound uh, shift, and then I started, and and, if, and and then I started to see it in the states too, because I went to the U.S. Social Forum about a little over a year ago, and I saw an amazing new politics there. You know, the majority of people were were in working class, it was at least half people of color, it was more than half women, it was lots of young people, and uh, it was a completely different kind of politic. It just seemed like um, the years of, you know, division, identity politics, all that were being overcome for a new kind of politics that embraces diversity, um, but recognizes difference, but looks for unity. Here, I want to ask you specifically about this. All through the book, you say over and over again that, uh, in your mind, process is more important than policy or program. And that's where you bring in uh, various examples of participatory democracy of of the kinds you've been mentioning. Uh, Could you say more about that as a general concept? Well, I think on the left, you know, we've had this idea, uh, certainly at the social democratic left, but even the, the, the far left, We've had this idea that you know we have to take state power and then put in good policies and have and we're better people so we'll put in good policies and then we'll implement them and life will get better and it, it hasn't worked out that way very well you know with the exception of Cuba um, you know left wing governments have a, you know definitely they're better than right wing governments but they haven't really transformed anything or made life better for the majority of people so especially that's true in the global south but even in the global north so. What I began, what I began to see, and you know, this is something I started to think about, uh, really, when I wrote Imagine Democracy in 2000, is that it's through people, ordinary people, getting engaged and um, figuring out how to solve their own problem that real change happens. And so, and I, and this is what I've seen everywhere I've gone. That it's the process of change, of of people transforming themselves and their community that really makes a difference, and that is a, is, is a long-standing change, rather than, you know, it's uncorruptible, right? Um, and so, uh, and what you see uh, in the Latin American left, which I think is the most advanced left now, particularly in Venezuela and Bolivia, is the role of the state then becomes uh, to provide the resources, the training, the money, uh, to give to communities for them to res- resolve their own problems. And that's um, it's not that you don't need leadership. Of course, you still need leadership. But that's the uh, approach that I see makes real change. Mind it's you, not, mind you, Judy, uh, you give some examples uh, which many of us uh, were involved in, like the Days of Action in Ontario, where 
hundreds of thousands of people were engaged in yeah. protest against uh, the uh, government there. And uh, also the huge demonstrations um, in 2003 uh, against uh, the invasion of Iraq. And in both of those cases and others you mentioned, that despite this massive uh, involvement uh, of people of the kind you're talking about, uh, it, the government didn't bat an eye. They just went on. That's right. So, I say that the problem is a problem of democracy, right? Because those same demonstrations like that in the 70s or 80s would have made a huge difference, right? And they didn't make any difference. Right. And, I mean, in, 2000, I mean the, the dem- in 2003, of course, they made a big difference in terms of turning public opinion against the war in Iraq. So we have a situation where we have a war going on with 70% of the population in the United States against it um, and with the majority of people in the world against it. But I think these movements, whether, you know, the, in the Harris case, what I say is that, you know, the labor movement, instead of realizing that this was going to be a long-term struggle and to build at the community level, which would have put, it, put us in a much better position today to face the crisis that we're facing uh, than, we, than we're in. Uh, instead, they sort of went back to their old ways of doing things. They said, oh, look at all this money we spent, and it was a failure. Well, it wasn't a failure because it was starting to build those relationships that we need between the labor movement and the community um, to really change our society. But right. nobody uh, saw it that way at the time. I, I Some people s- did, like in London mm-hmm. and a couple of other places that happened. But the labor leadership didn't see it that way. And, and so, but all of these set, you know, they set, uh, all these experiences set a ground. You know, we learn from them, right? And I think that, um, it's very frustrating, and people are feeling demoralized. I was feeling demoralized, not, you know, a little demoralized when I started working on the book, because I felt like we're just doing the same thing over and over again, and we're beating our heads up against the wall, and we've got to start doing things differently. And right. That's why I wrote Judy, I want to switch gears a bit. Yeah, sure. Um, as with all your books, uh, this one, Transforming Power, is thoroughly autobiographical. At one point, you say about yourself, and I'm quoting here, As I grow older, I find myself less governed by feelings of anger in my activism and more governed by feelings of empathy and compassion. At another point, you you give yourself a light tap on the back by saying that you are learning to disagree kindly. (laughs) So the book is about transformation, including personal transformation, beginning with your own. So could you say a bit more about your personal transformation? Yes, I, 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 you know, I'm of a generation um, of women that had to, that learned how to lead from men. And so uh, in order to be heard in the 60s and 70s as a leader, uh, you had to act like a man. And I'm very good at doing that. You know, I, I'm tough. I'm aggressive. I'm, yes, you are. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a good arguer. You know, people are afraid of me, you know. And, yes, um, they are. <laughs> <laughs> and... And when I, when I became president of NAC, I realized that my leadership style was oppressive to other women. So I, I, I tried to change and you know, at least become a better listener. But in the world, it, ha- it had a, a very positive impact, right? Um, because, of course, we still live in a very patriarchal culture. And, but it wasn't until, I think it wasn't until, um, but for, so for me, over the last number of years, uh, since I started working on this book, or even a little before, I went to... Uh, I start the book talking about this visit to Hollyhock for this uh, conference called Media That Matters, a circle of 30 people, and of people working in the media, right? And I realized that they um, had a, a very different way of dealing with discussion and differences. 
that was much more productive, much more supportive, much more caring. And that um, they also had a knowledge, a lot of the people there, about how, like, the men were really different. You know, they, like, for example, the first day I was there, three of the men said, I'm afraid, which I never heard a man say he was afraid in public before. So I started to pay more attention to what they were doing. I started to work with Hollyhock to understand what they were doing. And, you know, I don't always agree with them. Sometimes I think they're conflict-averse, too. But, but I learned a lot about um, being more caring and compassionate. Not that I don't get angry. I still get angry. I'm an air furious over the Israeli assault on Gaza, for example. But it's a question of letting go of that anger and not staying with it, right? Okay. Um, you know, I quote Starhawk in the book who says, we rebel... To, to survive. We rebel to survive. But if we stay in the period of rebellion, then it turns against us. And I think the same is true for anger. Um, I think that anger is important as a rebellion, important to give us energy to stand up against power. But I think that it scares a lot of people away. Right. And a lot of people who get involved otherwise um, don't, because they don't like the confrontation. They don't like the anger. They're afraid of it, especially women. Um, and um, and, and it's not good for us either, physically. You know, it's not, it's not a good place to be. Um, you know, the other day my friend said, you know, that activist energy of being angry all the time. And, you know, we turned it against each other, too, right, in our movements, you know, sure. which certainly in our generation we're very sectarian and angry and um, denunciatory and all this stuff. And it's not, it's not healthy. It's not positive. And when you work with indigenous, when I work with Aboriginal people, I see a different kind of energy there. I see a different kind, you know, they're just as strong... They're just as powerful, they're just as willing to speak truth to power, but they're not, a lot of them, not all of them, you know, I'm not, I don't want to generalize too much, but the, the, a lot, I see in a lot of Aboriginal communities a kind of very strength that comes from connection to other people. It doesn't come from anger, it comes from connection, and, uh, and a strength that comes from compassion. And so that's what I've tried to, I've, I've learned how to do myself, and I, and I find I'm much happier. Lovely. Uh, thank you very much, Judy. Um, I'm going to remind our listening audience that they must get hold of your book, Transforming Power from the Personal to the Political. It's a fabulous book. Thank you. Yes. It means a lot, Cy, for, me, for you to say that to me. I really appreciate it. Okay, Judy. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. This is Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes, and my guest now is Sam Gindon, former research director of the Canadian Automobile Workers and assistant to the president of the CAW. He teaches political economy at York University and is a member of the Canadian Dimension Editorial Collective. Welcome again to Alert, Sam Gindon. Hi, good to be here. Well, thank you for joining us. Events are changing swiftly for the North American automobile industry, and we've been trying to keep up with them here at Alert Radio. Just last week, we spoke with your colleague, Herman Rosenfeld, about the proposed restructuring offered by GM and Chrysler in anticipation of government financial help and the concessions offered by the unions as part of the restructuring package. But a few days ago... President Barack Obama announced that these changes aren't good enough and he directed the companies to undertake a much more thorough shakeup if they expected government help, including the forced resignation of one of the major bosses. Take us through these changes that he was asking for and tell us what you think of those. 
Well, I, I, I think, first of all, what uh, Obama was saying is that the auto industry is, in fact, very important, and they're going to need more money, and that they want to save it if they possibly can. I think politically he was saying that it's hard to uh, get money through the Congress uh, for these companies uh, unless they put more pressure on them. And in particular, they have to get at uh, some kind of a deal with the bondholders who've really been holding out. Uh, and uh, Obama is trying to also put pressure on the bondholders, partly by squeezing the workers even further. One of the ironies of this is that people have been talking so much about the delegitimation of neoliberalism as an ideology, but what you see in practice is the state being directly involved uh, to insist on uh, particular conditions in bargaining. And you have to remember how tough this originally was, because they were trying to get the auto workers in Canada and the states to see the standard that they have to go by as being Toyota, a non-union company, which is a, which is a remarkable kind of intervention by the state. Well, the industry in Canada has already been devastated. How will these latest developments affect the automobile industry, which is uh, primarily centered in Ontario? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the things to keep remembering through this is that even if they save GM and Chrysler uh, through this process, there's been enormous layoffs over the last uh, few years. I mean, in Canada, over this decade, uh, employment has been cut uh, by more than half. There was a crisis in Windsor before the official economic crisis started. That's one thing. And the second thing is that part of the conditions for getting through this isn't just wage cuts, but uh, that the companies uh, cut back further in terms of employment and restructure. So you're going to have another third to half of the workforce laid off. So what you're going to end up saving is a relatively small General Motors. Uh, but And you have to also think about this in terms of the spin-offs uh, in terms of the parts industry, which are enormous, and of course in the communities, because the nature of the auto industry is so concentrated in certain communities. Will the uh, changes demanded by Barack Obama in order for government money, will they save these companies, the jobs, the pensions, and you mentioned the crisis in Windsor. Uh, Detroit is another city that depends on its uh, manufacturing. Uh, Will Barack's proposals save all of this? Well, uh, we don't know, because uh, you know, the, the, the focus on workers, for example, um, th- this isn't going to be solved by workers having lower wages. That's not the problem here. There's a longer-term problem of the models that the companies have had. There's the problem, really, of the legacy costs, especially in the United States, the costs of health care pen- and for uh, retirees, which are enormous, but it affects us because uh, workers here are working for the same company. So even that, if that's a major problem in the States, it affects them. So nobody knows. We, you know, you know, we know that this is really going to not just devastate workers, it's going to smash the union in terms of what the union is forced to do here. And whether at the end of the day uh, things will be saved, we just don't know. I mean, this is going to involve more pressure, for example, on workers' health care in the United States, so they're going to lose health care. I think pensions are going to come next. So this isn't the end of it. Uh, you know, auto workers in Canada gave up concessions uh, May of last year, they made other concessions now, and every time they think it's over, there's more concessions. The point about concessions is that they never end. They just keep coming back. If they can get it from you, why not? And the second point is that their record in saving jobs is atrocious. They don't save jobs because that's not the problem. And, and the other major thing right now is that uh, we're in a horrible 
recession, depression right now. And uh, if this continues, uh, GM won't be able to survive. Well, so Sam, it's those larger questions that are crucial. Well, Sam Gindin, what alternatives are there for the unions? What can they do when they're boxed in like this? Well, I, I think what we have to appreciate is that I mean, the unions are in an incredibly difficult position with uh, all kinds of pressures on them uh, from every direction. But one of the problems we have is that unions have really resisted thinking larger and raising larger issues. And what that means is that they're always left in the same box where all the options are so limited. And I think we're at a point where ideas that used to sound crazy because you're raising larger issues which sound a little bit abstract and they don't sound like they're immediately possible they're not so crazy anymore what's crazy right now is to just keep doing the same thing uh... and i think the kind of things that have to be raised is first of all the unions have to start also being critical of the companies and challenging what the companies have uh, the role of the companies in getting us here because otherwise people blame workers they have to realize that uh... just trying to to uh... have a partnership with the companies and give them subsidies and lobby for their subsidies it hasn't worked and it's not going to work and what workers have to put on the agenda is that the issue here should be the productive capacity of the country we should not let these tool and die shops these uh, component plants these assembly plants go we need them to produce useful things and we should have a plan we should have a crown corporation that takes over these plants that are closing we should start hiring these tens of thousands of workers who are laid off and the engineers and the skilled workers we should have a plan that says for example if we're serious about environment in the rest of the century, it's going to change everything about how we produce, consume, travel, live. Let's start planning for it. Let's start making those changes. It's going to change everything in terms of the home retrofitting. It's going to change infrastructure in terms of wind turbines, solar panels. It's going to change every motor and every factory that we have. This is what we should be doing instead of sitting by and just watching this and somehow hoping that the market will solve solve it for us. And that used to sound crazy raising it at one point, but really today what's crazy is just to sit around and wait and see our communities devastated and our productive capacity disappearing. That's what the issue should be. It's really not saving GM. It's saving communities and saving our productive capacity. Sam Gindin, a former research director at the CAW, can I ask you what you think will happen next? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think the unions have really... Uh, made all these concessions and i think it's going to be very difficult for them to just keep doing this but there's going to be enormous pressure on them unless they begin to raise larger questions and it doesn't seem to be much evidence of this so uh... i hope it doesn't happen but i suspect very much what will happen is that the unions will try to find some way of uh... i imagine they'll give it up and give up more maybe they'll ask for some stocks in exchange so it's easier to kind of say well we got something out of it but if unions don't come up with a better alternative that raises the level of this discussion, I'm afraid they're just going to kind of be in a box of, well, this is a lousy choice, and it's unfair, and it's morally bankrupt, but what else can we do? Well, we appreciate your perspective. Sam Gindin, former research director of the Canadian Automobile uh, Workers, thank you for joining us here on Alert. Okay, thank you. This is Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes. The G20 countries are meeting in London as we speak. Their objective is to try to come to a consensus on what needs to be done to avoid a worldwide depression. Besides the seven wealthy industrial nations that belong to the G7, the G20 also includes China, 
India, Indonesia, Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Australia, South Korea, Turkey, Italy, and South Africa. We have on the phone now, in Ottawa, Michel Shosodovsky, an expert in the international economy. Michel has acted as economic advisor to governments of developing countries and has worked as a consultant for international organizations, including the United Nations Development Program. He is editor for the Center for Research on Globalization, which operates a website at globalresearch.ca. Welcome to Alert, Michel Shosodovsky. It's a pleasure to be on the program. Well, thank you for joining us. Now, we're at a bit of a disadvantage because we're recording this interview a day before the G20 meetings actually begin, although the protests have, are well underway. It's well known that the various members of the G20 will have their own differing agendas that they'll be bringing to this meeting and that consensus will be very difficult to achieve. Essentially, what we have, we have three camps, the United States, Britain, Canada, uh, Australia, perhaps, it's the dollar-pound camp, uh, namely the fact that Britain is not uh, part of the European monetary system. It's not, uh, it still has its currency, which is pound sterling. And so we have an Anglo-American alliance. That Anglo-American alliance also prevails in military terms. It's, it's, a, it's a very important axis. Then you have the Europeans, the European Union, uh, where essentially the major the major powers is France and, and Germany pushing the, the interests of, uh, of European banking, namely uh, essentially uh, the fact that the euro is also world currency and it's competing with the dollar. And then you have the Chinese and the Russians. Um, they are also military allies. That's very important under the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the, uh, the SCO. Um, they are now pushing uh, the possibility of having an alternative world currency. Um, and, uh, and at the same time, should be understood that the U.S. dollar is extremely fragile, um, largely in view of, this, of these massive bailout programs, um, and also the fact that uh, China is uh, the largest creditor of the United States. Um, it holds billions and billions of dollars uh, of U.S. dollar-denominated uh, debt instruments, such as treasury, uh, treasury bills, government bonds, and so on. So um, if China were a military power, uh, a superpower, it would probably tell the United States, uh, pay up or we'll invade you. Uh, but, but that's not happening. Uh, so we have, the irony is that the United States collects debts from everybody else, but we are in a situation where China, uh, being the largest creditor of the United States, uh, is, uh, is not exerting the power that it, it, that it would otherwise. So um, tell now, us, so, what, what do you think of the chances of them coming to a consensus at these meetings in London? I, I don't see uh, a consensus on issues of su substance. Um, they're, pushing, they're also pushing the idea that the... The International Monetary Fund should inject, uh, um, you know, large amounts of of of, um, of uh, cash into the world system in the form of new loans to developing countries, uh, without really addressing the fundamental issue, which is the mandate of the IMF. Uh, the fact that the IMF, uh, in the last 20 or 30 years, has performed a pretty negative uh, function in 
in uh, in relation to indebted countries. Uh, uh, they've imposed uh, austerity measures. They've impoverished uh, the populations of of large number of countries through strong economic medicine, and that role is not really questioned. Uh, I, I think the main problem that we have is that people who are coming to these meetings are essentially committed to uh, uh, to the neoliberal agenda. Uh, they're committed to deregulation. Uh, politicians are controlled by financial institutions. Very clear in the United States, Obama responds to some very powerful people in, in uh, banking and so on. Uh, um, this is a safety net not for people. It's a safety net for financial institutions, large banks, and uh, it's characterized by a massive concentration of, of, uh, of paper wealth, of financial wealth. Um, it's marked by the collapse of the real economy, and I don't see that these people as actually being capable uh, of formulating uh, a, a real alternative. And, and not only are they not capable, but they don't ha there's, not, there's no political dynamics behind them which would, uh, which let's say, would push a Keynesian solution to 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 the crisis. So we're really in a catch uh, twenty two situation in the United States. The bailouts essentially they don't res they don't resolve anything. The 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 solution, in fact, is the cause for further collapse. Um, I should mention in Canada, and people don't know about it, there was a two hundred billion dollar bailout which was approved. By the, uh, it was it was never mentioned. It was never debated. Uh, it was a mortgage buyback um, from the chartered banks, namely the Treasury injects billions of dollars through uh, central housing and mortgage. But in effect, it leads to a massive increase in in the in the budget deficit, and and we so we also in a very fragile situation, uh, we we implemented a bailout which is very similar to that implemented in the United States, with the difference that there was no debate in Parliament, and in fact, most people in Canada don't even know that there was a bailout. Michelle Shostodovsky, I'd like to ask you about uh, what you think, if this summit does not achieve great results, is that in fact a terrible blow to the world economy? Investor George Soros has declared that without positive action coming from this meeting, the world will be sunk into an economic de depression. Uh, do you agree with uh, the, the stakes being well, that high? I mean, uh, George Soros is a, is a financier and, and, and very much involved in, in financial markets. Uh, uh, and I, 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 I mean, there have been... There have been some very important uh, analyses uh, on on what's going on, and and uh, I think definitely there's a possibility that the international payment system could 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 disintegrate. Um, we are already uh, in a situation where the real economy is crumbling, um, and it, and it is the result of manipulation. It's not the result of uh, you know these. Movements of the stock markets, of of, for, of the forex markets, of commodity markets are the result result of speculation. Uh, we have a financial architecture which is inherited from the late 90s, uh, which repeals a very, some important pieces of legislation of the 1930s. I won't go into detail. And the architects of this of this deregulated financial environment, which create the sort of global financial supermarket. It was a Clinton-era um, 
legislation. And in fact, the architects are the people who are now in power with, with Obama. And what it does is it essentially provides the speculators uh, with the ability to, to uh, appropriate wealth, manipulate, uh, transfer wealth, and also control the reins of monetary policy. I missed, Mr. Geithner is essentially uh, is the former CEO of the New York Federal Reserve Bank, which is, uh, which is a private in- banking institution. There is no public, publicly state-owned central bank in the United States, and he is essentially pushing the interests of, of, the, of the Wall Street Um, uh, financial giants. This is Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes, and our guest has been Michelle Shosadovsky of the Center for Research on Globalization. I'd like to ask you one final question to wrap up this interview, marking the G20 meetings in London to deal with the the global financial crisis. In your opinion, is there a solution to this crisis? And if so, what should the first steps to be taken be? Well, there are many things that could be done um, if the political will were there. The first thing I would do is to, is to freeze derivative trade altogether. Uh, I would then um, freeze the accounts of the, of the hedge funds because they're, de- they're, they're not subject to government re- regulation. Thirdly, um, since we're in a debt crisis, I would cancel the debts of, of most of the developing countries and, uh, and redefine this is a, in fact, these countries could do it now. Now they've nothing to lose. Previously, they were on blacklist if they, if they, you know, if they said no, we're not going to pay our debts. Uh, uh, the the process of debt accumulation is really the the consequence of of this form of manipulation. There are many things that can be done, and I would say uh, instead of handing money to the banks in the form of bailouts, use that money from the treasury to uh, to uh, to um, revive the real economy um, in in Canada, twelve percent of GDP have been handed over to the to the chartered banks, and once that money gets into their coffers, they can do what they want with it. Uh, there are no strings attached, and uh, the government could just as well have taken that money and used it to uh, create jobs, um, to rebuild uh, shattered social programs, hospitals, schools, build roads. Uh, and and uh, because it's an injection, it's a cash injection. It's a massive cash injection. But what has happened instead, and it's very visible in the United States, is that we're in a major uh, fiscal collapse. Because if you look at the figures in in the U.S., uh, tax revenues barely, federal tax revenues barely suffice to cover defense expenditure. So they have to run a massive um, um, budget deficit with a view to financing these trillion-dollar bailouts to the financial institutions, which in, fact, in effect are really creating also a collapse in, in, uh, uh, in, um, in uh, other programs like health and education. So, well, Michelle Shostodowski, we're going to have to leave it there. So we'll direct our listeners to your website, globalresearch.ca. Thank you very much for joining us here on Alert. I'm delighted to be on the program. Best wishes. That is Alert for April 2nd, 2009. I'm Jeff Hughes. Thank you so much for listening to the program, and we hope that you will join us again next week when Chris Elby is able to return to us. Thanks, as usual, to all the people that helped make Alert happen. Nash Soon Walla for the headlines. Karen McIntosh for Around the Left in Seven Days. 
André Clément for Music is the Weapon, technical producer Tommy Allen, and our executive producer, Saigonic. Alert Radio is broadcast on the Canadian Dimension National Radio Network. For today's episode, you can click on www.rabble.ca or go to the Canadian Dimension website for past shows as well as today's show at www.canadiandimension.com.